Hello, everyone, and welcome to a Speculate One-Shot. Today, we are going to be playing a world-building game called A Land Once Magic by Viditya Voletti, who is a game designer with a variety of games out. And if you are watching live, I will put information about A Land Once Magic and Viditya in the chat. And if you are listening, the information will be in the show notes. So A Land Once Magic is a world-building game. If you watched Valorward, you might have seen our game of Ex Novo, which is a world-building and map-making game. This is a bit different, but is still in that kind of um, world-building game milieu, like genre of RPG is maybe the best way to think about it. And so I'm very excited to be joined by two of my friends and colleagues who are also science fiction and fantasy writers and professionals. Uh, we play in a different game together that is not broadcast, streamed, or recorded anywhere except upon our souls because it is a good game. So I will let my friends introduce themselves briefly, and then I will reintroduce myself to anyone who is new to the show, and then we'll get started. So uh, Marianne, briefly tell us about who you are and what you do. Hi, my name is Marianne Kirby. I write speculative fiction, primarily sort of a soft horror, and I do a lot of fat activism and nonfiction. Uh, you can find me at various places online as The Rotund, uh, which was the name of my fat activism blog blog words are hard and i just always want to know what creeps people out excellent aj uh yeah i am aj hackwith i am the author of a fantasy series called hell's library the first book of which is the library of the unwritten it's a fantasy series that centers around a library in hell which contains all the books and never written all the stories never told uh and it's a fun route that's a completed series. So it's out in bookstores now by uh, Ace Books, Penguin Random House. Love for people to read it. I'm working on a new series now. And you can find me, you know, I'm on the internet under AJ Hackwith uh, at a lot of places. I'm pretty idle because I am busy writing away stories. But uh, always happy to say hi. I occasionally post photos to Instagram. And I'm active there and have Patreon and uh, love talking about games and stories and storytelling. So excited to play this game here. Excellent. And so for the folks that are watching, you will be able to see both that AJ has an amazing glowing D20 in the background and that Marianne has two cute plastic dinosaurs in the background of, uh, of their image. So bonus content, if you're watching video on Twitch or YouTube. So one of them is being written by shipwreck. Oh, very nice. I was just talking about G.I. Joe's with my trainer yesterday and like that toys that made us thing on Netflix talking about like the show. commercialism of like toy cartoons. Very the cool. whole point of being an adult is to be able to finally afford the toys that you were denied as a child. So. 100%. Like, <laughs> Absolutely. Teenage Mike would be so jealous of how much time I spend playing role playing games. Uh, now. So I'm just living my best life for, for them. So I am uh, Mike Underwood. I write as Michael R. Underwood. I do action adventure, uh, science fiction, fantasy. I've done urban fantasy, epic fantasy, space opera, 
And right now I'm working on a rom-com, which is a lot of fun. Um, I'm one of the three co-hosts of Speculate, along with Gregory A. Wilson, who is the host here at twitch.tv slash Arvin Elleron, as well as Brandon O'Brien, who is uh, was the GM for our Fractal uh, Spire series and is working on a new thing, which for which I will do potty fingers. Uh, but for today, it's just me with my two friends here, and we are going to create a world out of nothing the way that you do when you're a writer. So we are playing A Land Once Magic, and this game has, there's, there's going to be like four-ish phases, but this first section is is kind of like doing a session zero for our world building game. And what we're going to do is first we're going to pick some paints to put in our palette, like we are setting ourselves up to know what we're then using to do this other creation. So instead of like implicitly drawing on touchstones and going for vibes, we're going to talk about vibes and touchstones and then use them. Uh, and that way we will be able to refer to these in the lovely Google Doc that I have here that you are seeing if you're watching on video. I will try to make it so that podcast listeners will be able to get access to the palette and touchstones to make that easier to keep track of. Mike, Remember this in the future. So the first thing to do is we're going to come up with paints. I'm going to read a little bit of directly from the text um, here because uh, I will let the, the author speak for the game here. Before you begin crafting the world, you must decide on some paints and sent a set a palette that everyone will be painting with. Paints are heavily descriptive words that help everyone get on the same page with the type of world you'll be crafting together. And then there is a list of suggested paints below with words like acrid, lush, rooted, vibrant, eerie, melodious, wayward, jagged. And so, you know, here we're going for evocative, we're going for mood. This is kind of foundational vibes, uh, is what I will say here. And basically, it says each player should create or pick two paints and write them down. Don't show the other players. So what I think maybe that looks like is everybody... Type your two paints into our Zoom chat, and then we're going to do a countdown to posting them, and we'll reveal them all at the same time, and then we'll pick some from that. Uh, so the list in the game book is suggested, but you are not limited to these if you don't want to be, if you have something else that you think would be cool. Okay, so we're going to do a countdown. Three, two, one, post. All right, and then I will read these out. I'm going to read from the bottom up, so I'm not putting myself first. So we have candlelit, hallowed, haunted, saturated, coarse, and melodious. I like that we also all separated them differently. Uh -huh. Like we cannot get a consistent like schema here. Yes, that's uh, that is also pretty amusing. So once everyone has written out two, reveal them at the same time, discuss amongst each other which paints you want in the game. Each player gets the final say on at least one paint. So, Marianne, are there any of these that really, uh, really excite you? Um, I really love Candlelit, just as not just mood, but also you can draw so much about the environment and the rest of the setting from something that is Candlelit. Mm -hmm. I really like that one. Okay. Yeah, that even like plays with your like your saturated too, because like Candlelit colors are like rich and moody and saturated yeah sure very cool uh aj what is standing out to you in this list 
Well, I guess like an interesting thing to like bring up is like it's the differences between haunted and hallowed. Right. So what what's that difference for you as you kind of interpret it? I think hallowed is like haunted, but like worn in, like broken in denim kind of haunted. You know, it's okay. it's the kind of it's the hallowed that's like it's the haunted that's like softer and like worn in the bones. It's it's less personified and more like I don't I'm not thinking of hallowed, hallowed like like religious, but hallowed as like a place that is potent with past. Something was once here. Yes. And don't necessarily here have. was once something. Yeah, right. kind of thing. So I I added hallowed like worn in denim as like uh like a, a kind of refined dig in a little bit deeper uh, notation there um, for us yeah. to keep track of. But I like both of them. So I like the tension between them. Absolutely, I do. I think almost the tension between them could be. A That's where there's yeah. like really there's interesting stuff there. Right, because. If we stopped here at candlelit, hallowed, and haunted, I feel like we have a tension in hallowed and haunted where they could be pulling against one another or they could be kind of pushing together somewhere. And then we have candlelit, which is kind of on a dip, like an intersecting axis. It suggests maybe a little bit in the way of technology and also to me like a, a certain sense of intimacy because candles will only light so far unless you get them in such a mass, right? I think it also introduces a human factor, right? Like things can be haunted by absolutely non-human things. Things can be hallowed in that sense as well. But candles, like that takes takes people making them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do we want to add any other paints from this list of six or something that wasn't on the list that we think would be a great compliment here. I think it, there's probably room for one more that maybe points in a different direction or adds some different dimension. We will also add touchstones. So say, I always kind of like a dissonant note mm-hmm. in something and it feels like coarse kind of feeds into that. Right. Um, in a way that melodious would not. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. I am certainly down with this. Um, So folks watching on YouTube and uh, Twitch will learn, as they probably learned before, that I am not the world's cleanest typist. So just don't add me. Okay, so that gives us candlelit, hallowed, haunted, and coarse. Do we feel good about those? I think so. Okay. So once we've done that, we move on to touchstones. The book says, everyone then picks one piece of media not traditionally considered fantasy. They want to draw an aspect of inspiration from as a touchstone. Now, A Land Once Magic is labeled as a game of post-fantasy world building. Now, what post-fantasy means will be up to our interpretation. The first thing that comes to mind for me is... 
the very, very first world building episode for the actual play show Friends at the Table, where host and GM of their first series, Austin Walker, talked about wanting to make a post-fantasy world, where this is a world that used to have an epic fantasy era and vibe, but then the world moved on from there. And we could do that, or this could be post-fantasy in some other way. I feel like that's the the day after you finish a Fall of Magic game. Mm. Like, whatever that world has become, that's post-fantasy. Yeah, because that that makes me ask, like, what part are we post? Are we post the epic? Are we post the magic? Yeah. Uh, There's a, a section in the book where we will get to talk about magic in the setting. So we'll definitely be able to explore that. Yeah, because, like, that interests me especially because, like, they say, like, the the magic fades and magic is gone. Well, nothing ever – everything always leaves a hollow, a, you know, an empty spot. There's, there's something that is created by something dwindling or fading. Any resource in a natural environment does. So I won't get – I'll wait until we – the point in the game where we get into it. But that – if it is the fall of magic, then we it definitely doesn't mean it's entirely gone or it, it's, it hasn't shaped things on its way down. And at what point is it faded to? Yeah, I think that's um, that's a very cool angle. It's not an on-off switch, definitely. I'm using facilitator privilege to take a note. Magic and residue slash haunting slash hallow as something maybe we can loop back around to. But next thing up is touchstones. AJ, you already shared a touchstone. Would you be okay to talk a little bit about it and what um, what you find inspiring about it? Sure. I I recently, ha- I there's this artist on Etsy that I have been just admiring for uh, the longest time. And I finally was able to um, splurge and get a couple of their prints, which I just adore. And it's these fantastic, um, they have a very, oh, I don't know how to talk about art, but it's a very like, kind of classical realistic style. Kind of like a, It looks like it'd be one of those like, classic oil paintings of like your great 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 grand ancestor in their victorian garb portraits you know that that some rich person would have hanging in their hall only all these the ones that this artist does uh often has like a like scruggly monster and uh as a pet instead of a, a hunting dog or a little little lap dog or whatever and the artist is omar ryan right rayon I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, we'll make sure we have the links in the video if, if Mike can help me out with that. Yeah. And I just love their work. And I have one of their prints in my hallway in this big, overly ornate frame. And we joke that that's our new, our new predecessor for the household. It's the new house matriarch of our family. Um, and I think that that was my touchstone. And I loved, I was thinking of how to describe her describe what I liked about this touchstone. And I think kind of the old master weird kind of style, the like the, like the sense of history, but that creeping of like something unsettlingly different in the background kind of thing, but it's like right pressed up right up there with society and civilization too. Mm. So like that kind of sense of, the refinement meets the monstrous is what I think I wanted to pull from that touchstone. Unless someone had like even a cooler observation. So 
that little being with this person looks to me like what if we had the middle ground between like the middle of a triangle of lizard slug and i don't know like a dog maybe <laughs> it 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 lo- it do- I, I love that portrait so much the the portrait's that picture's name on the artist website i believe is pookie and I love it because I also I foster uh, animals for the local rescue. And so I love, we always get these like giant beasts of a dog that seem monstrous at first, but they're just the sweetest creatures. And so I always just think of the big, big lugs of dogs and stuff. That Okay. Yeah, I just, uh, I went. It and- is, it's, it's a picture for, for, for the podcast listeners. Um, and if you, if you aren't looking at the photo right now through the link, it's a, it's a very refined, oh, what would you call that dress? Like a, was that Victorian era? Edwardian? It's a historical dressed lady. And she's just looking calmly at the camera as there is this like, almost like, slug-like beast just kind of like curled up behind her with its tail curled and she's just got its tail in its hand and it's just kind of peering around her like almost like it's a more afraid of the camera than sh- and hiding from it mm. right yeah and i i like how it uh this piece for me um feels like it's all in a fairly tight like orange color story where there's not a lot of contrast between the different elements but that to me, makes them all feel like they go together. Yeah, it's that warm, very, very, like, saturated, kind of, like, soft. Yeah. It's not harsh. Mm-hmm. Perhaps kindled. <laughs> very cool. Marianne, did you have anything you wanted to share about this piece before we move on? I just, I, I just love the, the piece, and I've been looking at the artist's website basically since you shared it. Um, <laughs> nice. Okay. So, I mean, you're, you have definitely started a thing. Um, I like it because it is very much the incorporation of like the fantastical and the mundane all together. And I love that. I love that kind of like treatment of the fantastical, I guess. But also I love anything that, um, Positions the stuff we're supposed to be afraid of as the familiar, you know, our constant companions. Very cool. Yeah. So what touchstone would you like to bring, Marianne? In a previous life, um, years ago, I, um, I was a science editor at a textbook company and I produced a whole bunch of fourth grade science books and fourth grade science is really concerned with the natural world um, a great deal, but also cycles. And so ever since then, right? Like I think about cycles a lot. I think, and sometimes it's literal, it's the water cycle, you know, it's, it's the, the seed and plant cycle. It's the, the cycle of decay, that kind of thing. And I just, I always am um, sort of aware of the cyclic nature of things. And so that's kind of the thematic touchstone i was really thinking about the um the constant emergence i guess of of life from decay and decay from life just to turn up the gothness mm-hmm. of 
this podcast, I guess. Very cool. So I think cyclicality is a really great touchstone for for work when we are thinking very consciously about something like a, a passing of ages, right? Because we have the time we're talking about now is in dialogue with the time that it came that um, that is it is uh, succeeding, and so like th- the idea of focusing on what emerges from moving past fantasy or a collapse or something feels like it already it does tie into this notion of like haunting and hallowing, but not necessarily in like a only one way, right? Because life emerges from decay, decay emerges from life. And that also lets us think about the falling of a past age, which I think we'll get some prompts on. Yeah. What are the mushrooms that pops up from the decay of magic? Yeah. Mm. Thoughts on that for, for our other game. I, I'm going to be on my bullshit and I'm going to bring tango song. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So, if uh, for most people, if you know one tango song, this is the song you know. It's called La Comparsita, and it is traditionally the song that is played at the very end of a night of dancing. And uh, if you will excuse my a cappella rendition, uh, I'm just going to share a little bit about it and then talk about it to convey the sense of vibes, um, because otherwise I would need us all to stop and listen to this music for like four minutes. But maybe I'll, I'll, I'll share a link so that folks can listen to it on break if you want. But it goes, dum, 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 da, 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 dum, 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 da, 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 dum, 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 da, 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 dum. Uh, and so that like that last bit is used in like a zillion movies Mm -hmm. and it has the thing in traditional argentine tango where a lot of the songs end with a dun dun and like dancers traditionally will find some kind of like exaggerated really cool position to end them to end the song in so that they can look cool and show off to one another because for me Argentine tango is this thing that was like a huge lifeline for me when I was in grad school because I had uh, I went to college in the town where I had graduated from high school. I stayed friends with a lot of people that I was friends with in high school. And then I got through undergrad and I moved across the country to do my grad work. And I didn't know anybody. So I I had this complete social upheaval. And for the first semester I was there, Thank goodness I lived in a house with a lot of roommates because otherwise I just would have like absolutely shriveled as a social being. But in the second quarter, because this was on quarter system, I took an introductory Argentine tango class and just absolutely fell in love with the style because it's deeply improvisational. It let I kind of brought my martial arts experience to tango and was able to apply some of that same like kinesthetic intelligence and interpretation and improvisation in a collaborative fashion, which like an interesting fight between friends, like sparring can be collaborative, but dancing is collaborative in a really different way. And then there's just like tons and tons of aesthetics poured on top of it, right? Like people in the suits and the dresses and fancy, fancy shoes and cool hair and La Comparsita is this um, kind of, it's like a metonym for Argentine tango as a vibe overall for me. And so the thing I want to bring to the game is not just the song specifically, but some of that, that sense of um, refined conscious aesthetic 
in presentation and a kind of like sweep like sweeping string instruments and I, I feel like it goes well with candle lit because you know lighting in in tango is often like a really big thing and so um that it gives some stuff that is material in a different way in terms of like suggesting social dance that's highly ritualized. I feel like it turns up drama is not the right word. It turns up the spectacle of it. Sure. Like the performance of the spectacle, which will be fun. So like candlelit haunted, uh, goth monster cyclicality, uh, you know, just kind of how if we throw all of these things together, like where, where are we sort of heading? Yeah, because, you know, like, especially if we're like creating a world where there's a thing in like great decline, like magic, often when there's like a shift like that, like society will respond by having like increased amping up some other aspect of like social connections and things. And so like right. an intense dance scene would be yeah. <laughs> right along those lines. Yeah. And like, or you know, or nothing fills that void. And then you are left with the consequences of the lack. It's true. Sure. Cause then yeah. what uh, AJ, what that ma- what your last comment makes me think of is regional identity increasing when you l- move away from home. Where it's like people like oh I didn't I didn't watch the the Bears growing up but then I moved from Chicago to San Francisco and watching Bears games let me connect with regional identity in such a way paralleling or intersecting that with like oh parts of our world are falling away and so we grip more tightly to things that maybe didn't matter as much to us before but they we've come to imbue them with some extra meaning. Well, it's like uh, during the the black plague there was these dancing crazes and these dance fevers that village would grip villages because uh, i'm not a historian i don't know the full the full historical mark of it but uh they went hand in hand because of the grimness of the the terror that was sweeping sweeping the areas also went hand in hand with these like different things that went along so yeah that's fun to play with we are getting a very fun gothic uh exciting drama as fuck world yeah uh in retrospect i i the aesthetic that i gave us for the overlay is not totally in keeping with what we've ended up with but that's fine like what i get what what i came up with is a little bit gentler um but maybe i can figure out like a title card that will will fit our vibe more more suitably i was like thinking like a, with the words just i was like oh like cozy and handmade but i'm like no <laughs> yeah and what we have doesn't necessarily automatically suggest doesn't have to suggest grim right because we can have oh, no. different things and so we'll we'll get to explore that space a little bit more but there's definitely some very exciting rituals that happen. Sure. Very cool. So the the game says, discuss amongst yourself how you want to record what you've come up with. We have done so uh, on our Google Doc. Um, the game can easily be played as a writer's room game. What you choose to record and take with you is entirely up to you. And so we this is literally a writer's room game and that we have a Zoom room full of writers. So the next step was we're going to use a deck of traditional playing cards and we're going to draw three cards to detail a legend of this land that um, kind of has moved on or has changed from a fantasy place. We're going to 
talk through the legend, and then we're going to use the same cards that we drew to talk about magic in this world. So, Marianne, you have a deck of cards. Could you draw us three cards from this deck? Very excited about this. I love this. Here we go. I shuffled a lot before, y'all. It's not just that I am, like, shuffling twice. It's that I shuffled a great deal before, but I can't, like, not shuffle again. Sure. Okay. So we have... Okay. I'm like, oh, the Oracle speaks. We have the Seven of Hearts. We have the Nine of Clubs. And we have the Five of Clubs. Okay. So... I'm going to read translated to something. Yeah. And so this is page three of the book. I will read the first section. Does everybody have the book up? Uh, Because that way we can spread this out and, you know, it's not just me talking. Um, So a legend is told of, and then we have seven of hearts. So hearts, an unbeatable monarch and the kind of examples that are given that we, we don't have to use these names, but these are the vibes. The Crimson Sword, Soul's Lance, the Vermilion Hammer. Do you want to identify all three of our prompts and then try to figure it out or go one at a time? Let's identify all of our prompts if you're okay. cool with that, AJ. Yeah. yeah. I think so. So um, the Unbeatable Monarch is represented by a um a 1978 circus style theatrical one sheet for a new hope. Oh wow. Oh yeah, that uh I think that's in a pack of posters, Star Trek poster or Star Wars posters that I bought a few years ago. AJ, do you want to read what a nine of clubs gives us for the second section? Sure. Um, a legend is told of an unbeatable monarch and their tales of let's see, clubs with the foundational morality. Hmm. This is um, a theatrical release, Japanese poster of Empire Strikes Back. Okay. Uh, and Marianne, can you do the third section? Yes. I, a legend is told of an unbeatable monarch. Their tales tell of foundational morality. But now the legend has been warped, giving rise to industry. Hmm. And another Empire Strikes Back poster. <laughs> All right. Industry, y'all. All right. So we should we want to take these one by one then, or should we divide these up? How do we want to do this? Mm. So I'm just writing out the full things that we have, like a, a text to go with. But I'm happy to kind of zoom in and out because these are all going to fit together. The Vermilion Hammer sounds dirty. So. <laughs> it just does. I'm sorry. Any kind of hammer. Yeah, and I'd say we don't have to use any of these names if we don't want. <laughs> I want to know, do we think that this unbeatable mo- monarch now, like, because we're looking back, right? Is this unbeatable monarch, does the residue of them remain as hallow or haunting? Like, can we, do we want to start connecting back to our palette here? I was thinking about tallow actually and how like it's used to make candles so what um what kind of spins out of that for you i just started that's where it started okay tallow will like is that i think about like dripping wax i think about like dipping 
dipping the string to kind of accrete the candle foundational morality. Like a candle that doesn't burn out, a, can- a wax that doesn't ever... Like an unbeatable monarch and an eternal flame of some kind. Mm. Yeah, eternal flame. We can do better than that. Though. We totally can do better than that, but that's like the... Uh, yeah. Unceasing wick. <laughs> um, I'm going to like... I, unquenched? Unquenched. It's a, little, it's a little much in the mouth. But it like it does suggest fire, eternal flame. Like that's just a thing that people do, where they have like the mm-hmm. gas and it keeps the thing going. Makes me I think of like hearth. If like gets us more homey, but then like bonfire maybe suggests ritual. Conflagration is a great fire word. What is the name for the candle that is the tape the the altar candle that lights all the other candles? Oh, um, Not taper. There's a specific name a for specific it. Name for it. Yeah, it seems monarchy. We are Google. Yeah, I was gonna say like we are all on the internet. Do you do that in conversations where there's like a room of eight people all holding onto their phones, and everyone's like, "Gee, I wonder this thing," mm-hmm. and then like nobody bothers to look it up. Well, uh, there's the there's a term for the specifically the candle and the menorah but i didn't want the specifically yeah. that there was i was thinking there was a more generalized term right. uh well we could we could invent our own yeah because that like if if we're doing that way we could look at the source we could yeah like so like a candle term that sounds like scepter but isn't mm. like t- taper at the constant taper Constant wicker, uh, the constant flame, the constant. Another way to go would be like the Tallow Queen. I did yes. think about like the Tallow Lord, that sort of thing. Um, Let's have a queen, Empress. The the Empress. there's cast too because with candles you cast you can cast in wax. Mm-hmm. And like yeah. the soy paraffin, paraffin <laughs> Empress. Clean burning with a wooden wick. I like the tallow queen a lot. I feel like sometimes we go really complicated because we're trying to imbue names with like right. all the meaning. Trying to have the perfect one, man. Yeah. yeah. And so maybe like pencil and tallow queen. We have now the legend has warped giving rise to industry. So the legend has warped. So what about the change in how people thought about the tallow queen and the foundational morality led to industry. I feel like candle to industry, not too hard. Yeah, yeah, I, I had a good one for that because, like, the Tallow Queen was this foundational morality that she was this light in the darkness, and she was that altar candle that brought light to the under other unlit candles of the world. But over time, her legend has faded, and in the mi- minds of weak men, it has now become simply that one bitter nub of candle that you can eke out another day's labor of during the night. The Tallow Queen gives you that second day of job to side hustle in. The Tallow Queen now only rules over the graveyard shift. Oh, yes. Yes. And I mean, obviously, the sort of thing we wind up playing with there is literally the burning the candle at both ends. Yes. 
right? Yeah, like, literally what I was writing down. Because then, because <laughs> uh, it's like, if you are, you know, if you, something about like the tallow queen's light then becomes the idiom for burn the candle at both ends. There's right? some kind of saucy double entendre about the tallow queen there here yeah. in right. this world. Um, or like, you know, if, if it's more saucy, is it like the tallow queen's uh, concert? I'm like, or, you know, I'm keeping vigil with the tallow queen. You know, you get something about wicks. I do feel like keeping vi- vigil with the tallow queen. That does sound, that does sound loaded. <laughs> Dipping your wick, too, with the tallow Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so what is the tallow queen's foundational morality? Or what, what, is, what foundational morality is she associated with? Is it, like, you know, about like hard work or honest work or, like, sharing something with others? AJ, when you were talking about how, like, now you work second shift, I was thinking about, like, well, before it became second shift, like the light in the darkness was so that you could, you know, spend time with family so that you could pursue like pleasurable things so that you had more safety in general, but also that like that luxury of reading and, you know, all, all of those sorts of like downtime activities Hmm. that you lose when you are, working two jobs or whatever, but also that, I mean, we could only really do when we had light. Maybe the tallow queen's foundational morality was she was the symbol of driving back the haunted night. The idea of the magic, the magic haunted night that was full of, you know, superstition or not was, was full of the possibilities and, and the frights of uh, the coming darkness. And now with the f- fading of magic, that's not a, such a big concern and superstition for the people of this world. And the light has come to just represent more time for capitalism. Yeah. Right. So then is it about that you that lighting a light to a certain degree is always also recognizing and respecting the power of darkness, right? Because you only need a light because you need to cast away the darkness. I think also lighting a light is sharing that safety with others because yeah, the light only goes so far, but if enough people have light, you know, you, you create a larger area that can contain lots of other people and, Everybody doesn't have to have their own individual candle if they're together, right? right? So I, I think that there is something, if we're talking about a foundational morality, there is something about a community and being together. You're right. So if it's, if the foundational morality is like light for community and pleasure, and yeah. then the legend gets warped, giving rise to industry, right? That gets us to the burning the candle at both ends thing where, People aren't lighting candles to share time with one another uh, unless they're coworkers or something. Are they not afraid of the dark anymore for some reason? Good like, is the magic specifically associated with the darkness? And with the fading of magic, they're just not afraid of the dark anymore? Yeah. Like, okay. So, 
I'm thinking, is there something in the candles that we can, like, do we try to bring in coarseness somewhere? Or is that some other quality of this world? Or is the coarseness social? I was going to say, perhaps the things in the dark that scare them are things that a candle won't drive away anymore. Yeah, that's a good point. So the thing that ma- that makes me think about is, what if it was never the candle? It was always the people. Yeah. Yeah, the ritual of it. Because I don't really love the idea of like making darkness bad, necessarily, by, by symbolism. So it's less about pushing away the darkness and more about there was some ritual that perhaps was also lost with time until there was just the symbolism and it was misconstrued. And I don't think that things have to be bad for people to be afraid of them. I think that it's the unknown, right? Like if there is something that the darkness represents, I think it is just the unknown and the unknowable, but definitely not bad. Yeah. Yeah. Is it also that like going back to the industry, is it also that they just don't make candles the way they used to? Hmm. Right. Introducing coarseness as a, as a sort of like consequence of, uh, of losing that, that, that touchstone, that ritual. Yeah. I mean, I think what we're we're playing with here in this question specifically is that we're not just losing uh it's not just magic that this world is losing, it's also losing knowledge and nuance. Yeah. Along the way. So shall we take these cards over to the magic and talk about that a little bit? I feel like we should feel free to loop back around through things, but I don't want us to get caught on any one section too long. Yeah. Okay, so magic, we have a seven, a nine, and a five. So those are, how does magic manifest in the senses, if any? How, what natural laws does magic allow you to bend? And was magic discovered, given, or created? So any thoughts on those questions? I think considering the palette words we've chosen that magic in the senses in this world should be very tactile. Yeah. I think it should be very, cause we have coarse and we have, we have the decay and we have the dancing and we have all that. I think Magic should be felt almost like a vibration. It should be very tactile feeling. It's not so much a smell or a sound or even visible. It's it's a, it's something that's felt in the bones. And I think maybe that's why it's tied up with this feeling of the cycle of life and rot. And it's in the earth itself because it's so tactile. It cannot be, it, it absolutely cannot be unwound from our natural world. And that's why when it's fading like this, it's had a, such a big effect on everything. It's coarse. Yeah. So we've got, if, if they've got a very tactile magic, 
Um, and we have the Tala Queen who shares her light and there's you know, connections to sociality and ritual and maybe leisure, but then eventually gives way to industry. Do we think that like did the did the Tala Queen discover magic, create magic, take or learn about magic from somewhere else? Or does magic come not from uh, from the Tala Queen or not, is not associated directly? I feel like that's one of the things that's changed, right? Like, I think that she didn't invent magic, right? I think probably it was a, a one of those discoveries that lots of people discover lots of little bits of. But over time, what has happened in this warping is the message that she has given it to people. That makes me think of like, oh, okay, was magic like a candlestick accreted over time in the way that you dip? You know, the, the one time I did, I did candle making as a kid, is I'm drawing all of my knowledge from this. So like, I could be totally wrong. Like um, a folk, folkloric accretion of magical practice, right? Where instead of like an orthodoxy, where it's like somebody walks out of a, a cave and like, cool, here's a hundred things about magic. You know, instead, someone does a thing and something unexpected happens. And then over time, it accretes, if I'm understanding what you're what you're suggesting, Marianne. That is what I was suggesting. Yeah. And then I, like later, the codification thereof during this like warping. Yeah, I like the idea of it being actually very like granular and folk accessible, but warped over time it's it's become this thing that was given to us by the queen herself that it was you know granted by the higher ups in society even though it's actually you know it's it's folkloric i i that's a it's not one of our words but i i like the idea if it's something that's coarse and something that's as simple as you know candle making is so beautiful because you can make candles out of the meanest ingredients and you can make them so many different ways. You can make them out of animal fat. You can make them out of so many different basic things. And I think that if this magic is the same way, it's, you know, it is so inherent to everyone in this world that, um, yeah, it's not give it, but it's become that. Right. It's grammar. It's become distant from that. It's grammar. It's we used to have a whole bunch of different grammars describing usage, and now we have like one prescriptivist approach. Well, it's like mushrooms. Mushrooms are everywhere. They are decay. They are they grow anywhere. Stuff is decaying, and stuff is decaying everywhere. But they are, you know, they are. They have become a symbol of class in gourmet and in food. And, you know, you'll pay hundreds of dollars for specific types of mushrooms prepared a certain types of way. Right. So what, what then with kind of folkloric practice that got codified and like appropriated and kind of almost like a sense of, of grammar, what can you use magic to change in the world? You know, what natural laws does magic allow you to bend, do we think? Do we think that because this is we're touchstoning on so much natural cycle of life stuff that that's the 
core of this kind of magic. So is that like necromancy, healing? I mean, those are two sides of the same coin. I mean, say, it's the same thing. I mean, is, do we go that route or do we go... Because we could also go like a kinetic route with the with the dancing and the tango. I think either way, it's very of the body, right? Like we're talking about it as being a very tactile thing to experience. And I think when you have a multitude of practices, you can use a thing for more things. It's centered in the body. You can use it to heal or, you know, whatever. Um, and then as it gets codified and sort of focused, it's really only used for, like, industrial productive purposes. And so maybe some of the, like, elements of it for healing, for, yeah. you know, communicating with the dead. Maybe we, we flip this and it's usually... Maybe it's not the necromancy that gets banned yeah. this time. It's the healing. Yeah. Yeah, because if you can bring people back, you have more workers. Exactly. <laughs> uh, post, post, post-capitalism. Man. Uh, yeah, we are really sort of having a very meta game of capitalism yeah. um, right now. Because this is, or one option that came to mind for me is is one of the ways you do magic, either the codified way or the uncodified way, is that then connected to the dancing? Like, do we do you have like uh, basically um, industrial magic that is just pairs of pairs or groups of people dancing the same thing over and over and over again because it's been systematized? Is it square dancing yeah. with a collar? Hmm. But yeah, ritual that has, you know, ritual that has become commercialized. Yeah. Because then we can also have non-orthodox magic practice that is social dancing, that is more improvisational and less structured. And that gives you underground nightclubs. Yes. Which every, every, every fantasy role-playing game needs underground nightclubs. So I feel like Marion, like, just adding underground nightclubs has got me to the point where like, cool, I can write a short story in this setting now. <laughs> and my, my brain is just immediately going like, okay, but where are the, what, have, what about the monsters? What about right. the natural world? What about this, this kind of magic has to spin I, out. I like, I always have such a problem with worlds that position us in opposition to monsters really like going, oh, going back to your painting right like i think that in the in the back in the day like the early tallow queen day right like that would have been where your painting was from like that integration of the monstrous and the mundane all together right but i don't think monsters are very good at codified dancing in a factory you know and it's really it's really breaking that relationship apart right when yeah. you are when you are i don't even know if you are outlawing but when you are like clearly positioning this is the superior way of interacting with magic than hanging out and reading a book while 
you pet a monster, like that suddenly becomes like. Yeah, no, no, I wasn't meaning monsters in, in, like, the monstrous way, but, like, the beasts of the natural world, like, especially, like, what you're saying, as I agree, like, if that, if that domesticated relationship breaks down over time, from the Talaquin era to the present, like, what happens when you cease to support a domesticated relationship with these beasts, monsters, whatever we're going to call them, these, these candle creatures, (laughs) <laughs> oh, I like that a lot. Um, and uh, you know th- what? This this change has to have a environmental impact too. That these you know these creatures are turned loose, and they're they're still bred and trained to seek companionship with the people that have now tur- you know turned them out. Yeah, because I'm thinking of the I like the island of dogs. I was thinking about pigeons. Oh, right. pigeons. To to go back a little bit, AJ, when you're describing kind of this, that breakthrough and breakdown, I was thinking like, oh, did the, did the category monster come into existence as the delineation between useful creatures and non-useful creatures? Like Mm -hmm. animals are the creatures that fit within this new systematized world and monsters are the ones that don't. And yeah. like, can like, can we fold that into what we what what you've already established? How do we feel about that? Yeah, but I'm I'm still like, but then on the other hand, like, I think that any world, I still as an animal lover, I still have a hard time seeing a world where like people are still not going to want to like have pets of some kind. That there's still True. going to be some kind of domesticated. But how so? How does that change? How does it change from our our pooky picture to present? Yeah, because we can we like maybe the set of animals that are kind of like companion species, like mm-hmm. where we have a symbiotic relationship. That set was larger and has become smaller, and yes. the animals that have been left out of it do then they get labeled as monstered as monstrous, and yes, so the monstrousness they, they have to be is size now. Uh, is is. Monstrousness is failing to conform to industry. And then then we get into some of the ways that monstrousness is politicized and reclaimed. I was going to say, AJ, it's, it's also, it's the breeding of like genteel lap monsters and like purse monsters. And that's where the artist has a painting for that too. (laughs) Yeah, they do. I love that one. I think it's, it's control, right? is really what it comes down to. Uh, it's what are the what are the monsters that we can control in very specific ways are animals, and the ones that we cannot control are monsters. We're probably at about a good place to take a break. Does anybody want to add anything to like animals um, real quick before we go to break? I'm in excited. a high necromancy world, you never lose Pookie. You never lose Pookie if Pookie is your pet, but we haven't talked about like livestock and animal husbandry animals. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. The theme music for Speculate is Yellow Wood by Greg's band The Road. Find out more at www.thebandtheroad.com.
Hi everyone. If you've enjoyed what we've been doing here on Speculate and you've been thinking to yourself, where can I get more role-playing in my life? Can I recommend arvaneleron.com, A-R-V-A-N-E-L-E-R-O-N.com, where you can check out the Curse of Strahd podcast. This, set in the world of Ravenloft, is a Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition campaign, which has been running for a long time with a similar group of players, and which has been both a lot of fun and I think you will find enjoyable. If you like it, please let us know both there and over here. You can subscribe to it on iTunes, Google Play Podcasts, and many other fine podcast providers. Thanks, and we'll see you over there.